If you're just joining us for the first time, if you're catching up with us, we are in the middle of our series, What If Jesus Was Serious? Our study through the Sermon on the Mount. So far, we've gone through the Beatitudes, the salt and light of the world, and over the last few weeks, we've been in this current section of the sermon. The section has been looking at this new messianic kingdom that Jesus was introducing and how it relates to the Old Testament law. Six times in this section, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say. Every time he is talking, he's taking something from the law in the Old Testament and is contrasting the false interpretations and, or its application with its proper application uh, found in the new kingdom of God. So this morning, we're going to finish off this section uh, where we'll do the final two sections or the final two you have heard it said statements. So let's jump in at Matthew 5 verse 38 together. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now let's stop there. When, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, again, just testing, where, what is he referring to? Where does this come from? Thank you, the Old Testament. Someone's with me. There's only like four options here, so. Um, yeah, the Old Testament. So he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, so to understand what Jesus is saying in these verses, we need to understand what this eye-for-eye stuff comes from. Three different places in the Old Testament, uh, we find this instruction. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. These three passages are referring to what was called the law of retaliation for the nation of Israel. See, in ancient societies, punishment for evil and wrongdoing were given without regard for the specific situation, often meaning that the punishment was far greater than the crime actually deserved. The law of retaliation was given as a means of providing justice and purging evil from among the Jewish people with two specific purposes, the first of which was to be restrictive. Essentially, the law of retaliation was given in order to make sure that the punishment didn't exceed the crime to put a limit on what could be done. So if I came along and I punched you in the face, punched you in the eye, my eye was to receive equal punishment. Or if you slammed a door on my hand, your hand was to receive equal punishment. Most theologians doubt that the punishment was actually applied literally in most cases, but it was a visual metaphor to determine the equivalence of loss, to sort of put a cap on just how far the justice should go. If you have siblings or kids, you probably understand why. I have a twin brother, and as brothers do, we would get into it sometimes. You know, boys will be boys, as they say. As things escalated, they often turned into punches. Now, looking back, I can recall feeling that his one punch to me deserved about two or three or sometimes eight in return. But the thing is, though, I think he was feeling the exact same thing on the other side. See, that perfectly explains why this law of retaliation was given in the first place. It is human nature to want to get even and give them what they deserve. But it's also really hard to be impartial about what's been done to you. See, without a proper handling of justice, things can get out of control really quickly. Let's be honest, it happens in our world every day. Think about your words. Don't we all do this with our words? Someone insults you and you insult them back and they go bigger and it's just a back and forth battle. Think about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It seems more and more that these platforms are being used as a function to create escalating dialogue. Maybe it starts out as something sincere or innocent, but you scroll down a few comments and it is just a bloodbath of people tearing each other apart. See, that's why this law was given, 
to restrict, to say you can only do to a person what has been done to you, not more. The second part is that this law was actually never intended to be handled by individuals. It was, it was supposed to be controlled by the court authorities, by the civil authorities. Not you, not your friends, not your brothers, the courts to handle it justly and fairly. The main purpose that it was given to the courts was actually to discourage private revenge, personal vendetta. Because like we just talked about, the person being offended was more than likely going to be a tad bit biased in their retaliation, being inclined to respond more extreme than was originally done to them. By Jesus' day, this law had been dragged into the personal sphere. Bitterness, vengeance, anger, violence, hatred marked all of the situations. And here was a disturbing thing. All sorts of good, God-fearing people kept saying things like, God is just fine that I got revenge because God says, an eye for an eye, so I can sleep fine because God is with me. See, they missed it. They missed why the law was given in the first place. One, by using it for personal vendetta, by personal vengeance, but more importantly, because they missed God's heart behind it. They viewed it as prescriptive, as in, you must do this, not as restrictive, as in, this is a last resort. It's within this context that Jesus teaches, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. The Greek word there for resist is the word anthistami, is translated literally meaning to take justice into one's own hands. So when Jesus says this, he's literally saying, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not take justice into your own hands for the one who is evil. Jesus knows how the law of retaliation has been misused and twisted into personal retaliation. So he just starts off by calling it out and restating the original intent of the law. But then, as we've come to see him do many times already in this sermon, he goes and he takes it a whole lot further. Continuing in verse 39, Jesus says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I've always read this passage to mean a physical attack, but in my studying this week, it was clear that that wasn't actually the main point. See, a physical attack may actually be taking place here, but the main offense is a public insult. Notice that Jesus specifically mentions the right cheek which tells us that he was describing a backhanded slap. Now, according to the Jewish law of the day, to hit someone with the back of your hand was twice as offensive as hitting someone with the flat of your hand. When you did this in the culture, it meant calculated contempt. It was a symbolic way of insulting a person's dignity, honor, and value. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm personally attacked, personally insulted, my instinct is to throw a jab back to tear them down in return, to, to dish out an insult that I've been holding on to. But Jesus is saying, no more of that. From now on, when you are insulted, you need to turn the other cheek. When someone is lying about you, attacking your integrity, when you're falsely accused, when you're made to look bad or stupid, when it's just a sheer personal attack, Jesus is calling us to waive our rights. Remember, according to the Old Testament, you had the right to seek justice to a certain degree. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or we could put in there an insult for an insult. But I say, turn the other cheek. 
Let them hurl another insult at you. But don't you return that attack verbally. No. Your job as a follower of Jesus is to waive your rights. Now, before I continue, I want to be very clear that this does not condone abuse or violence. Jesus came to set free the vulnerable and the oppressed, not to trap them. So please, don't ever let someone use this scripture or one like it, one like it to keep you in a terrible situation. I, I wish I had more time, but I just need to say that is not the point of this verse, okay? You with me? So what is Jesus trying to say? He's saying, when your reputation is attacked, we are not to protect our name to vindicate ourselves. It means when we are not to try and stop the line of gossip or verbal abuse. Rather, we let it carry on. It means we refer we refuse to make our enemy look bad by putting them down in return. It means we lay down our rights to rebuttal, to refute evidence used falsely to accuse you. It means that we bite our tongue and refuse to respond sharply or angrily in any way. Now, trust me, even as I'm saying these words, I want to argue with myself that I've misinterpreted this, that it really is just about a physical hit. Somehow that seems more palpable to me. But come on. There's no way Jesus is telling me just to roll over and take the insults, take the gossip, take the false accusations. But this series is titled, What If Jesus Was Serious? We're not looking to water down what Jesus had to say. We want to really take a deep look at what he was saying and what that means for us. Jesus is calling us to turn the other cheek because it's exactly what he demonstrated to us on his own trials. First Peter Chapter 2 says, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, it looks to me like Jesus was serious. He took his teaching of not retaliating and letting people insult him without defense right to the point of death. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, okay, okay, you make an intriguing argument bringing up Jesus' example. But if only I knew why. Why am I turning the other cheek? What is actually going to accomplish? In turning the other cheek, Jesus is asking us to make the other person and his or her well-being the center of our focus and choosing to point them towards Jesus with our actions. See, any old person can throw an insult back. When you turn the other cheek, you are being a picture of Jesus through your actions. Because of the salvation we've received through Jesus, our worth needs only to be found in him. We are living now for his glory, for his acclamation. If others gossip about you, falsely accuse you, insult you, you are able to turn the other cheek because you are secure in the way that Jesus sees you. Now, before we continue into this passage, I want to reassure you that Jesus is not countering the Old Testament law of retaliation. Justice is as much a theme of Jesus as it was in the Old Testament. Sin needs a check against destructiveness it wreaks in our lives. Sin must be punished. Jesus does not deny justice in any way. He is the judge. Our job is to give our vengeance over to him. There are no secrets with God. He already knows. He sees all. He's in every situation ever. Every person will come face to face with Jesus one day and will be held accountable. Jesus is releasing us from needing to seek our own justice. 
I believe he would say, you worry about using those moments as an opportunity to represent me, and I will worry about your justice. If we could get this right, this is the evidence that the kingdom of God is actually taking root in our lives. Then Jesus continues on with his next example. He says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. A tunic is essentially a long sleeve shirt that they would have worn back in that day. And a cloak was an outer robe or a coat of sorts. According to the Old Testament law, it was illegal to take someone's coat, cloak. The cloak was considered to be an indispensable piece of clothing. It was an indisputable right of the Jew in that day. See, it was because it wasn't only their coat, it was also their blanket. But Jesus makes a staggering demand of his disciples. He says, instead of defending yourselves, fighting to keep your shirt, or seeking retaliation, Jesus tells them to give them the shirt off their back. But then he takes it a whole step further and says, you should also give them what they aren't even allowed to take, one of your most basic needs. Show them unnatural love. And then he continues, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, this wasn't Jesus just making up some random analogy. This was actually a Roman law. In Jesus' day, the government or military personnel could force you to help them with official business. To, commonly, they would force you to carry their equipment for a mile. This one act summarizes everything the Jewish people hated about the Romans. It brings up all the shame and guilt and anger and the religious and political hostility. And Jesus says, when that soldier who has no right to abuse you calls you to come and carry this pack for one mile, I want you as a member of the kingdom of heaven to do it for two. Show your occupier mercy and justice that makes no sense from this side of heaven. The most well-known example of this in the New Testament is when the Roman guards forced Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. See, if I think if we were to translate this passage to our day, Jesus would say, Jesus would be asking us to joyfully and freely give of our time and our energy, and then go above and beyond. So if someone asks you to help them move, that's how you know you're a true friend. If someone asks you to help them move, you want to do that, but then you're also going to help them unpack and set up their furniture and maybe make them a home, homecoming meal. If someone asks you to mow their lawn, do that, but then also weed their garden and trim their hedges. He's calling us to go above and beyond with our time and our energy. And then this last example is give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse to the one who would borrow from you. The two examples here, the one who begs and the one who borrows, both suggest someone in need. The one who begs is indicating a poor person who is begging for basic needs, money, clothing, food. And the one uh, that wants to borrow is translated from a Greek word describing someone who is unable to repay what they've borrowed. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel had a clear obligation to lend to the needy among themselves. But in our passage today, Jesus is opening it wide open. No longer just the needy among you, but anyone who begs, anyone who asks to borrow, anyone who has a need, even if they can't or have no intention to repay the debt. Look, I'm sure we've all been in this situation. You're walking down the street, you see someone with a sign, they're asking for money, and a million thoughts stream through your head as you go by. He's probably just going to blow it on booze or drugs or something. Uh, if he wasn't so lazy and just got a job, he wouldn't be in this situation. 
Maybe he doesn't even need the money. He's probably just taking advantage of generous people. Oh, I would give him something, but I don't carry cash, so I guess I'm off the hook. See, I get it. I'd be lying if I didn't have some of those thoughts go through my mind too. But what if Jesus was serious? See, it looks to me like Jesus is calling us to be radically generous, to give to anyone who has need, anyone who asks, even if you know that they'll never be able to pay you back. Jesus is removing our habit of judging the heart or the reason behind their request for charity or loan and freeing us up to live generously without question. Is there wisdom to how you are generous to those in need? For sure. My wife works with homeless youth all the time for her career, and she gets to walk their journey out with them and finds that in many cases, those judgments that we have, they're not far off. Yet, if Jesus was serious, we are still called to be generous to anybody and everybody in need, no matter how they got there. Does it need to be physical cash? No. You can buy them a meal, restaurant cards, give them clothing, bus tickets, transportation. You could be creative. But I do also think that Jesus' teaching frees us up to give them physical money. At the end of the day, when you stand in front of Jesus, you will be held accountable for how you were generous. The recipient of your generosity will be held accountable for how they stewarded what was given to them, not you. See, that truth takes away all the what-ifs. Jesus is asking us to be radically generous to any who has need and then leave the rest up to us. I'm going to come back to this time and time again today, but all we need to do is look to the cross of Jesus. He gave the most generous gift of all, his life, for us to receive salvation, all the while knowing that not one of us would ever be able to repay that debt. See, that is the radical generosity that Jesus is calling each of us to live by. In all four of these examples, Jesus is showing us that we have an opportunity to serve and to love those who, are offended, who have offended us. See, we have the right to seek justice according to the law of retaliation. But Jesus is asking us to waive our rights in order to be a true picture of the gospel to the world around us. Then Jesus summarizes these four examples and actually his whole sermon to this point, with this final, you have heard it said statement. He begins by quoting one of the central truths of the Old Testament. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, so the first part was one of God's commands given to Moses in the Old Testament and is also the answer that Jesus gave when asked what the greatest commandment was. You may remember, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The next part, however, to hate your enemies, is not found explicitly in the Bible. Actually, the opposite is true. There are multiple places in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, where the Jewish people uh, have been told to love and have mercy on their enemies. So where does this come from then, this hate your enemy part? Why does Jesus link these two things together? Most scholars would agree that this second part, to hate your enemy, is quoting a distortion of Old Testament understanding. Like when the children of Israel were, they're getting ready to head into the promised land, they're told, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Or when King David wrote, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Or Psalm 54, let them recoil on those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. You can see how hate your enemy would seem like a fair summary of what the Old Testament was saying. 
Yet there's an assumption, not yet, there was an assumption that the law said, hate your enemies. But in the first century, uh, this would have been a widely held view, with the Pharisees probably even teaching that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, before I continue, I know that I just opened a big can of worms, talking about this hating evil and destroying your enemy and some challenging texts we find in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to get into that today, so we'll have to tackle that another day. In the meantime, you can direct all your questions to Jonathan. He would love to answer those. (laughs) But I will say this. I believe that the old saying, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, is absolutely true. Or we could say, God loves the evildoer but hates the evil. God absolutely, 100%, no ifs, and or buts about it, hates evil. A perfect, holy, righteous, just God, by very definition, cannot tolerate evil. But praise Jesus, the story doesn't end there, or we'd all be doomed. Once again, all we have to look to is the cross of Jesus Christ to see how serious God was about this. See, God hated sin so much that he sent his perfect, holy, spotless son to earth to take on every sin you or I will ever commit, and then allowed him to be crucified on our behalf to put to death all of that sin. All you have to do is look to the incredible sacrifice God was willing to make to see how incredibly serious he is about sin and evil. The cross of Christ is the most beautiful gift that has ever been given. And now, because of Jesus' sacrifice, when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see evil. He sees the glory and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus in the place of our sin, in the place of our evil. And that is how God is able to hate the sin but love the sinner. See, my daughter Haven, she's turning one this week. Uh, She's starting to walk and getting into literally everything. Parents, I'm sure you can relate. We have this invisible like line at like three feet high where everything valuable we own is above that so that she can't get into it. She's in this phase where she knows she's not supposed to do something but pushes her luck and tries to do it anyways. She'll walk over to the lamp and then look back at us and then we get a little bit closer and it has this little smirk and look back at us. And then she goes and she grabs the power cord and she starts yanking on it. See, we're beginning to hate that she's doing this. It's not because we're trying to spoil her fun, but because we know better than her. We're trying to keep her safe and protect her from harm. She clearly knows that it's wrong and that we don't want her to do it, but she's doing it anyways. Now, do I hate my daughter? Absolutely not. I love my daughter more than anything in the world, but I hate the sin that's starting to creep up in her life. And I'm a weak, sinful human. Now, how much more do you think God can separate sin from the sinner and love you indescribably despite your sin? Anyways, back to my sermon on the mount. Not my sermon, Jesus' sermon. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus takes these two competing ideas for love of neighbor and hate for enemy, and he brings them together in such a way that would have stunned his audience. Jesus, you can't be serious. You want me to love my enemies? You want me to love the Samaritans, those half-bred, unclean Jews? You want me to love the Romans, this pagan regime that was so abused and suppressed our nation? Remember, the Jewish people of the day would have been taught that to follow God meant to love neighbor and hate enemy. 
But the reality is that God's intention from the very beginning was for these two to be married together as one. And this, this instruction is meant to bring reconciliation to what should have always been from the first place. If we skip down to verse 46, Jesus continues, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? As followers of Jesus, we are called to, to a higher standard than the rest of the world. But we've got to ask ourselves, do we really look all that different? It's really easy for me to love my family and love my friends because, well, they're my family and my friends. They love me in return. They care for my best interests. They want to see the best for me. But what about loving the people that don't love you, that don't want to see the best for you, in some cases may want to see the worst for you? Do you love them? Jesus uses this example of the tax collectors. Now, for us 21st century Christian folks, we know that the first century Jews hated tax collectors because they overtaxed them, right? You know, they took, they were supposed to take $20, they'd take 50, and then they pocket the other 30. But the reality is it goes so much farther than that. See, the greater issue is that a tax collector in first century Jerusalem would have been a Jewish citizen who purchased the right from Rome to collect this money on their behalf. Now, remember, Rome was an occupying force in Jerusalem. So this money that they were collected, collecting was used to continue to occupy and oppress the Jewish people. As part of that, they would rape and murder hundreds of thousands of people. See, these tax collectors, they would have sold out their neighbors, sold out their family for money. These guys were despicable human beings that the Jewish people would have hated. And here, Jesus uses the tax collectors to make his point. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Ouch, called out. Essentially, Jesus is saying to his disciples, great job, you love your family and friends who love you back. Whip-de-doo. That makes you exactly 0% better than the tax collectors who are the worst people you know. See, Jesus is saying it is human nature to love those who love you. But I'm talking about the kingdom of God here, not just what comes naturally in your humanness. In order to really step into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to love those who don't love you, love those who hate you, love those who you really don't want to love. Let's jump back up to verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, Jesus, that's great and all, but what does it actually look like to love our enemy? See, unfortunately, the word love has become one of those junk drawer words in our English language. You know what I mean? You love your spouse, you love your kids, but you also love Avengers movies and the Maple Leafs and pizza. So what the heck does it even mean to love your enemy? I'm going to give you my favorite definition of love that I'm stealing from a preacher named Vadi Bakum. Ready? If you want to write this down, this is good stuff. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. I'm going to say that again. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. That may sound like a mouthful, but let's break it down real quick and I think it'll make sense. Love is an act of the will. Love is not what you see in Hollywood. 
It's not an emotion. It's not infatuation. Love is not chemistry. Love is not lust. Love is an act of the will. This means that love is a choice. There's a huge reason that almost 50%, or maybe more, I don't know, about 50% of marriages end in divorce. Because everyone out there is looking for someone who's going to make them feel good, who looks fine, who they click with and have overwhelming feelings for. The problem is that emotions are fickle. They fade. Looks fade. Chemistry fades. If love is not built on a choice, then it will fade with all of that. But if love is built on a choice, then you can weather anything because your love for them is not based on what they can do for you, how you can be satisfied by them, how they make you feel. It is based on your will, your choice to love them no matter what comes your way. All right, then the next part was love is accompanied by emotion. So you heard me say that love is not led by emotion, which is absolutely true. A relationship built on emotion is built on a foundation that is doomed to crumble. Because emotions are fickle and fleeting, if it's led by emotion, it's going to be a roller coaster. But the relationship also shouldn't be void of emotion. Imagine being in a relationship or a friendship where there's no emotion, no joy, no excitement, no empathy, no care for depth. If you've ever experienced that, you would know that that relationship is doomed. You're probably looking for the door to break free right now. So emotion, so yeah, emotion definitely should be a part of the relationship. It just can't be the driving force behind it. And then the final part is that love leads to action on behalf of its object. This means that when you are loving somebody, you are seeking their best interest. Your love for them has nothing to do with what you can get out of them, how they can satisfy you, but entirely of what you can do for them, how you can serve them, how you can lay down, what you can lay down for them, what is convenient and preferential for their sake. How can you lay down your life for them? Once again, we only need to look to the cross of Jesus to see this definition of love exemplified. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying, if there is any other way, let this bitter cup pass from me. See, it's the night before his crucifixion, and he prays to be delivered from this bitter cup of God's wrath. Jesus doesn't feel like going to the cross tomorrow. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, it is an act of the will. He chose to love the church. It was accompanied by emotion so intense that he sweat drops of blood. And it led to action on behalf of its object. Jesus didn't need the cross. You and I did. He didn't do it because it made him feel good about himself. He did it because it was the only way for his bride to be redeemed. That is biblical love. Every single person you are ever eyeball to eyeball with, this is the kind of love that Jesus is calling us to. Whether they're a sibling, parent or child, best friend, acquaintance, the person serving you coffee in the drive-thru, that person at work that drives you nuts, that person when they walk into the room, you try to avoid eye contact, that person who broke your heart, that person who took advantage of your relationship, that person who's hurt you more than anybody else has ever hurt you in your life. See, if Jesus was serious when he taught that we are to love our enemy, that's what this means. Look, I know I don't know your story. And if I were to hear what's happened to you, in my humanness, I would probably agree that Jesus isn't talking to you. But if we take Jesus seriously, I don't know that anybody has an out. I do believe that there are different ways to love based on the situation, and it may require some wisdom. 
If you've been abused, assaulted, or anything along those lines, clearly there needs to be boundaries and wisdom of how you go about any interactions with that person. But can I challenge you and challenge myself? Jesus doesn't give us an out here. It may take you some time. You'll likely have to work through what has happened and work towards forgiving them. It will probably be very difficult and painful. But if Jesus was serious, then this is what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. Just as I'm wrapping up, you may notice that I left out a key part of verse 44. Let's jump back. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Firstly, these two things go hand in hand together. They aren't two different commands. They are one and the same. To truly love your enemy means that you will be praying for them. See, I believe that there is little that has more power to bring healing to you and to truly love your enemy than praying for them. Depending on the history of the relationship and the hurt, again, there needs to be wisdom. Loving your enemy may look different from how someone else is loving their enemy. You may never be best friends with them or invite them over for dinner, but no matter what the situation, we are always called to pray for them. Honestly, I think praying for your enemy is actually the key to this whole thing. And side note, I would argue that if you can't sincerely pray for them, you probably haven't forgiven them yet. But that's another thing. Praying for your enemy is not, dear Jesus, please deal with them so-and-so, make them stumble. May they get caught in their sins and would you punish them for what they deserve? No, that is missing the point of what Jesus is trying to say. When Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies, he is looking for sincere, genuine prayers. Praying for your enemy may truly be one of the hardest things we are called to as followers of Jesus because it is so against our human nature. But once again, Jesus isn't after the kingdom of our humanness. He is after introducing the kingdom of God, a radical kingdom so different from our worldly ways. When we pray for our enemies, we should be asking that God would be good to them instead of giving them what they deserve. And not only that they would be forgiven, but that they would be blessed. We should be praying for them as we would want to be prayed for. I know these are hard words to pray. And that goes right back to the beginning of my talk today. In our humanness, we are looking for retribution, that they would get what they deserve. But Jesus saved you from what you deserved. And he's asking you to pray the same thing for your enemies. And just a helpful tip. If you're, if you're not sure whether your prayers for your enemy are genuine or not, ask yourself this. How would I feel if Jesus answered my prayer? If it's anything but joy or thankfulness that he's answered your prayer, then you weren't actually genuine with what you were asking. A couple years after Jesus spoke these words, we see him walk the walk and be an example to us all. Jesus had been beaten, scourged, mocked, and nailed to a cross by his enemies. And even after all that, as he is hanging from the cross, struggling to breathe, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. In that moment, Jesus was choosing to love his enemies in such a way that it led to action on their behalf. With Jesus' sacrifice, he had made a way for them and for all of us to receive salvation and find relationship with God. 
Do you know that just a few hundred years after Jesus was crucified, Rome, the very regime that put Jesus to death, declared Christianity to be the only legitimate religion for the Roman Empire? And over 50% of, Rome, of the Roman Empire confessed Jesus as Lord. Man, that's incredible. Doesn't that inspire you? The same Roman Empire that put Jesus to death, trying to end this Jesus movement, ended up being so impacted by the way that the disciples of Jesus had love for them, their enemies, that they themselves surrendered their lives to Jesus. That is what loving your enemy has the power to do. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your Sermon on the Mount and the fact that it rings just as true today as it did 2,000 years ago. Jesus, this passage this morning is a challenging one because every one of us can connect. We all have enemies, people that have, we've been hurt by, people who've been burned, burned us, people who've betrayed us, even just people that we can't stand to be around. But you are calling us to love our enemies in a radical way, to waive our rights for how we should be treated for the sake of your kingdom, and to be a light in our world today. Jesus, we desire to follow the ways of the kingdom of heaven and acknowledge that the kingdom of this world so often trickles in and gets in the way. Please help us. We need you. Would you lead us in your love to those around us and build our lives on the love of Jesus Christ and nothing else? Amen. Let's sing together. I have tried to talk myself out of this last part, but I keep feeling like this is where God is prompting me to end. So just, uh, this is God talking, I think, not me. So just give grace for me if you don't like what I'm saying. I know the state of the world around us. Heck, I, I know the state of the world within the Christian community. We are in the middle of a global pandemic with racial injustice, political unrest, and economic and financial turmoil. There are a million opinions about the right way to handle things. Mask, no mask, vaccines, gonna save the day, vaccines gonna ruin our lives and take away our freedom. Look, you have every right to your opinion. But this nonsense that is causing division and disunity in the church has got to stop. We need to be loving our brothers and sisters, not making enemies out of them too. If we can't love our brothers and sisters in our own church family, then we are not only no better than the tax collectors, we're actually worse than. We have an incredible opportunity as the local and global church right now to make kingdom impact in our world. Our world is more divided than ever. If the church could rise up in unity, loving each other despite our differences, we could effectively share the love of God to both our brothers and our enemies. But as long as we keep bickering and tearing each other down over these secondary nonsense, we are destroying our opportunity to be a witness and radically love the broken world around us. So as lovingly as I can possibly say, I'm calling us out. We need to take Jesus and his message seriously and realize that there are things way more serious at stake than your opinions about what's going on in the world. The souls of your loved ones and enemies are at stake. Jesus is asking us to waive our rights, to put our enemies before ourselves, to love them in such a way that our love is going to point them back to Jesus. Man, if we could get that right, I believe we would see a powerful move of God in our day. 
So church, if you're looking for a practical way to go and be the church, this is it. Wave your rights, set aside your opinions and preferences for the sake of the watching world around you. I love you all. I hope that wasn't too harsh, but I feel like I need to say it. And uh, I hope you take it seriously. I hope you take it to to heart and that uh, you test it against God. I think we have an incredible opportunity right now if we could set aside our differences and be united for the gospel. Amen. I love you all. I hope you have a great week.